Hello and welcome to the second hour of Barbarian in the Valley. Now I gotta say that first hour was just way more coherent than usual. Just wait, made so much more sense. Probably because I did it with someone else. That it wasn't just coming out of my imagination unfiltered, but my buddy, Walter Martin, helped me move through that hour. And so in some ways that's good. In some ways you guys are feeling better, better about yourselves, better about understanding the world. In other ways that could be bad because incoherency, my friends, is the enema of modern times. It's what keeps things going. So next week, we'll go back to some serious, incoherent sound and music and thoughts and ideas. Now, we are, I tell you, in the belly of the beast. I mean, I've never been more in the belly of any beast in this slumbering campus, in the neo-brutalist campus center of UMass with no running water. Yes, it's true. We had to break our way in to do the show. So I'm thinking neo-brutalist structure, no running water. I think this is as close to the Soviet Union as I'll ever get. And, you know, considering it's really not that bad. Now, outside, it is, it is, hold on, wait for it. It is just so beautiful. Oh, we are just having the best weather, aren't we? And we are in the crystal ship. And we are floating above the valley. And you can see us. Go to your window. Wave to us. We are rotating around. We are moving over Hadley. We are heading for Northampton, East Hampton, Greenfield, Leverett. We're going everywhere. Hello, Holyoke. We're reaching out to you today. Now, it is about to spring to life. Everything is about to spring to life. And then fall. Fall again with the seasons. And I know out there, there's 91 students waiting for me. I have a full load this fall. 91 students who will sleep peacefully tonight. And I want to let you know, I'm coming for you. Research papers, extra homework, readings that you're not going to do, that you're going to copy off the person next to you. Well, let me tell you, I'm hip to it. Oh, and I don't want to forget, there's nobody at the high school better than dealing with cell phones than I and the cell phone caddy, which is hidden behind a map in my room. But we'll get to that. And now today we're going to get to, we have some really special guests. One is a former student, Ian Fishman. I call him the fish. And, of course, my lovely wife, Robin Cody, who's been on the show, I think, three or four times already. And it's a regular. Now, maybe next week we have a special announcement that the second hour is actually going to get its own name. The first hour is Barbarian in the Valley. We know what that is. But the second hour might actually, we might have a name for it. Okay? Oh, she's saying, I'm not going to say the name. Just saying. Just trying to get people excited out there. All right, listen. I'm getting the hook. I'm going to turn down my mic for a minute. You listen to our theme music, Diodato, also Sparks Zarathustra. And when we come back, we're talking about art. If you want, go quickly, if you haven't already, to barbarianinthevalley.com because the article we're going to be talking about is right there. It's on the site. We'll be back in a minute.
And we are coming back, and we are all the way back here in the Campus Center. And I'm just so privileged to have guests on this week that are near and dear to me. And actually really well matched in a lot of ways for the article that we're going to tackle. So that being said, can you introduce yourself first? Sure. I'm Robin Cody. I uh, spent many years in the arts, and I am transitioning into the role of an entrepreneur. So that is um, where I where I sit, and it is... It's at, relevant. It's relevant to this yeah, article. Very relevant. Okay, Mr. Fishman. Uh, yeah, hi. Uh, I'm Ian Fishman. Uh, I'm going to be a junior at NYU in the fall. I'm Mr. Cody's de facto son. <laughs> oh, jeez. There's truth to that. Um, I actually have a son. You know that. I like actually have a son. Now, yeah. he's not old enough to get confused by what sure. you just said, but yes, you're like my adopted son Yeah. Um, in, a, in a lot of ways. Now, that sure. may not be a good thing for you, <laughs> but you do remind me of myself, <laughs> which is why I often chuckle when we hang out, yeah. but in a good way, uh, really. And you've been in a course of mine. Yep. You often were, uh, during my modern Middle Eastern course, had a book of poetry underneath the desk that you were reading. I couldn't, I could just, could not bring myself to stop you. Yeah. Because who reads poetry in the middle of the day like that? Bukowski at school, you know. Bukowski at school, that's right. Now, we have an article this week, as I said, it's on the website, barbarianinthevalley.com, and we certainly would love to hear from you. The article is called, The Death of an Artist. Right, the death of an artist, and his name is kind of hard to pronounce. It's like William Achu a little bit. William <laughs> William. Deck is wits. Oh, Deck is wits. Yeah. <laughs> so we're not totally sure on the pronunciation of the last name. Although after Ian introduces the article, I do want to talk about the uh, author because I did look sure. into him a little bit. Okay. Uh, just want to let you guys know that the phone lines are open. Even though the water's not running, the phones are still working, mm-hmm. we think. Uh, and that would be 413-545-3691. 413-545-3691. And that, that just the third time, I always feel foolish doing this, but now I know that you're really going to get it. 413-545-3691. So yeah, Death of an Artist. Ian, what is it about? What's sure, the article about? Sure, So um, this this somewhat, not insanely lengthy article that, that we read for today... Um, concerns just the history of the artist within society and what the role of the artist is supposed to be playing within um, just the structures that are uh, well that they're operating within um, you know it started off talking about how uh, you know artists were almost next to gods back in the day day <laughs> yep. we're talking like middle ages and stuff um, mm-hmm. and then the development from there as you know capitalism became a bigger deal and art had to start developing under that and people paying for art to be produced and now we're coming to today where it's you know really all over the place and we don't really know what's going on with it so yeah and it, it, the name of the article is death of a death of a, of, the, of the artist death of the artist mm. so obviously you know we have the feeling that the author is um, a little anxious about the role of art let's just put it sure. that way it, it's called the death of the artist and the birth of the creative entrepreneur right okay so thank you for the clarification yeah uh now uh, just a, a side note on the author the author used to teach at yale was a yale professor but then i think just left and wrote a book that was a searing indictment of ivy league schools and an indictment of young people today. So, oh. you know, just so you know, he's, 
he's a little cranky. It seems like, I don't know how old he is, but he has a quality of being a cranky old man. But he does kind of like trace out this idea of like, well, in the late Middle Ages and post, you know, there was an artisan, right? The the, the artists were artisans. They were playwrights like wheelwrights were. And they had apprentices, and they were in traditions, right? Right, and that the primary role of the artisan was to master a craft according to what tradition dictated. So it was all about tradition. Yeah, tradition and craft. That makes sense to me in a lot of ways. Although, you know, it's interesting when it's like as you said, Ian, it's a brief article. Yeah. It's kind of brief. And so there's... There's moments in the article where I'm like, well, I don't know. I get why you're saying that about the Renaissance, for example. But the Renaissance was also like a tradition breaker, too. Like, they were doing stuff that was really quite new. I'm not... Oh, there's the new Renaissance, which is, I think, verging on romanticism, right? No, I'm talking about the Italian Renaissance, which really was in that model of artisans and people working, you know... Michelangelo had 40 people working underneath him and right. stuff like that. And yet it was also really new. So there was tradition. And obviously we have to give him a little leeway because he's trying to paint with a really wide brush in a very brief amount of time. You know, it's a short mm-hmm. article. Sure. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm just saying my head kept saying, yeah, kind of, you know, mm. not really, but kind of. Like we were talking on the bike ride over, it's... He talks about the institutionalization of art oh, after yeah. the post-Second World War. But sure. then I'm thinking, what, the, what about the romanticism of punk rock? You know, that's a romantic moment, to be sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, but punk rock could never, ever be institutionalized. You have to understand that. It won't? No. Really? Do you sure? Because I mean, to me, it's like, to me, there's, it's become kind of institutionalized. Or maybe not institutionalized, but kind of... It's ephemera, certainly. And yeah. institutions are interested in, in containing ephemera and collecting ephemera. Okay. Right? But you can't teach punk rock. Jazz right. is being institutionalized and has been institutionalized over the uh, past 60, 70 years. Right? And so, like, yeah, you could talk about the institutionalization of that and how, you know, there are people actually being taught to do that. You could learn how to play three chords in, on a guitar I and play, and play a, really a punk cool song. Point. You know what I'm saying? That's a really cool point. And I like you bringing up jazz. Because jazz is, does feel like an art form that killed itself. <laughs> what do you, you know? mean, Ian? By, Kerouac talks about that. I'm just interested in this point of ephemera. Mm-hmm. So sure. how are you, how do you, what do you mean by punk is ephemera? Um, as in like punk today or what we know of punk rock from, I guess, when it was being created or, or spawned in, little, in the late 70s and the early 80s, right? that seems like not alive and will never ever be alive and yeah it can be rehashed again and again in, in documentary new generations or, or people you know Posters. playing music that are influenced by these people but that scene's dead you know what I mean um, and there will never be you know talking heads playing CBGB anymore it's like a John Varvatos store if you're on the Bowery yes. um, <laughs> which might be another point to talk about later um, but yeah it's it's a it's ephemera because the collections and the archives in these places want that stuff. They want the playbills. They want the tickets. They want, like, the zines and the guitar strings and, like, whatever. And they want to have them. They want to put them behind plexiglass. Yes, but the creation of it is not institutionalized because it doesn't really take much to learn that stuff because it is so... And and there's also an ethos there that you're not supposed to study punk rock. Like <laughs> you can kind of study it as a historical moment. I think you're supposed so, to like live punk rock. Right. You're supposed to live it. Yeah. And um, 
So, and that's that's an interesting thing that I've seen in music over the time that I was young. Mm. Like, learning how to play an instrument was not cool. <laughs> like, that's not what you were supposed to do. And, and that's very different now. What were you supposed to do? You were supposed to be able to you play it instantly? You were supposed to be a genius that, you know... Well, you were supposed to uh, thrash around until some new sound came out, and yeah, yeah. And now, <laughs> you know, people are so good at their instruments. And actually, I think it's time for a little bit of uh, rabble rousing, a little bit of permission to like break it again. Because mm. I'll go see a live show, and I'm like, wow, these guys are really good. That sound guy's really good, and I am falling asleep here. Like, yeah. I don't want it to be that good, actually. Sure. Yeah. I mean. That, I mean, that's a good question because that sort of brings up the idea of like how spotless is it supposed to be, yeah. you know, and that could be for music or that could be for any other kind of art form. It's just like how performative is it supposed to be? Um, right. And if you're saying it's so performative to the point that it's perfection, then uh, I don't know. Yeah, that doesn't necessarily seem insanely interesting. It's not my right? aesthetic. So it's been going that way for a long time. But, you know, Robin, we've talked about this a lot, like learning a craft opposed to just being inspired. Right, and right. I think that there's always that real balance of, you know, what does it mean to really master something and what are the forces at play? So there's, and he mentions this idea of technique and this mm. is the professional artist now and you go to school and you, <clears throat> you know, hash, hash around, hash away at hours and hours of trying to, perfect your craft to this musician point but then there's the muse right mm -hmm. and and he talks about the this moment in in history where the artist became um this is to your point where uh ian which is almost gods but they were more like prophets where mm -hmm. they had this direct connection to some kind of universal force some kind of cosmic energy that they use their bodies and their craft then to transmit to the rest of us. And, um, and so there's this sort of uh, tug, this tension between the two, you know, and in, our, in my imagination at least is, you know, what makes a great piece of work really, really sing. And of course, I don't know, you know, I don't know how to answer that exactly, but... Well, he talks about that, that in the romantic stage, right? So the, the, original, the original stage he talks about people are apprenticing. They're in a tradition. And then romanticism comes along. There's this funny quote by Whitman. Now, I've never been a big Walt Whitman fan, to be honest I'm with, with that. you. I'm with that, yeah. Yeah, no, I know. And, I love him. Uh, <laughs> a little Whitman says, maybe. Whitman says, the priest departs. The divine literist comes. <laughs> I mean, it's just a little bit. A little bit what I don't like about that cult of genius mm. where it's like very you know it is it is interesting to think about is that is this new priesthood a result of the Protestant answer to the other priesthood and monkhood going right like is it filling that role in society well I mean yeah that's a that's a really good question we're definitely in a you know in this age that's the secularism is certainly a complicated thing to talk about nowadays. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think probably for a lot of people, you know, taking artistry or taking um, idols, right, in pop culture um, and elevating that to, to a point that's almost almost divine, then, yeah, I, I think that's... I think we're getting. I think we're getting there, <laughs> right? But but and again, like so. Here's the question. Let's just look, take a quick look. So he talks about the artisan first, being replaced by the priest of the Romantic period, being replaced by 
what he talks about is an uh, insurgent American power, post-Second World power, mm. that the wants to be seen... professionalism. Wants, ...wants to be seen as a world leader in culture and goes to institutions to make that happen. Yeah. Not that, by the way, this is another moment where I'm like, yeah, but the Europeans did that too. Like, that's not an American intervention. And, and in Europe, institutionalized art is way more prominent. Mm. Like, the institutions there are actually very powerful in a way that they aren't in America, although they may be going more so. And this is the professional period, right? This is your job. It's your job as an artist. Right. And you're supposed to be kind of like uh, professional about things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah, you might be a little bit wild, but you're being professional. And we're, we'll save the last one here. What did you guys think about... He talks about... He, I feel like he almost romanticizes. I don't want to throw too many similar words around, but this idea of the institution, post-Second World War institution, talks about New Deal books and record companies, almost like it's a good thing. Mm. He, he talks, which I, I mean, I thought this was a really interesting point. Um, I don't know if I agree. Growing up in, in the early um, 90s, record labels and production houses had a really, really bad reputation. But he describes these institutions as protecting the artist. I mean, we were speaking, it's like protecting the very few, the 10 artists that actually got some kind of gargantuan record deal or what have you um, and his whole thing was you could really you could really feel his sort of nostalgia for the artist being removed from the marketplace I mean you could really feel mm. that he really he really sees the value in that and, and I think there is a true value in, in, in being separate and distinct from the trends and the neuroses and the the habits and the you know, hysteria of whatever age you're in, that the artist needs to somehow be separate from that and um, while at the same time communicate a truth about whatever age mm. he or she is in um, to illuminate the, the reality of the situation. Sure. Okay. Go ahead. Ian. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's certainly, you know, a dialectic that every artist has had to struggle with forever, which is just like how much of this is being made to be consumed how much is for the audience and then how much of it is just purely for like the the act of just making um and and for for the making to be the art the artistic experience like itself and i think you know there definitely needs to be a balance like <laughs> there there are certainly like you know like those one or two artists that are not one or two there are many artists that that weren't discovered until you know they were deceased or something but you know I'm counting on that by the way sure well <laughs> that's the only that's my only go-to but it's right interesting <laughs> to think about like I know a lot of kids these days especially in New York and just uh you know who who want to be artists that feel like they're running out of time and they're 20 years old yeah and it's so confusing um to see all these people running and feeling like they're wasting their time and that you know uh whatever's going to happen is going to happen now or it's it's not and uh, well here, here's yeah it's interesting because here we have well, you know all these other factors like expensive real estate you know if you can't get your surfboard on the wave in New York City at a certain point it, it's hard to get it going and so yeah but isn't there something to be said about hanging out there for longer understanding the the tropes and the trends and not necessarily like giving into them but it's cool if you want to become a history teacher in high school. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah? 
Well, kind of. I mean, that was my route. Like, yeah. yes, there I is mean, something to be said for it, definitely. So but. what are you suggesting? Because what I'm thinking of, that that is cool, but how do you survive? I mean, how do you pay the rent? Do you get a day job? I don't know, maybe. I mean, it all depends on, like, how much of your art you want to give up and how much of your art you you want to make you money. You know what I mean? Um, and, and that's a real decision that the artist has to make for themselves, and nobody else is going to really be able to make that decision. You know, for me, I... I don't know. I'd be potentially cool with getting a getting a day job. I might just like continue on going to grad school and try to do something in academia and have that sort of try to influence the way that I go about making yeah, art, or which something has its along own those lines. compromises and issues. Of course, it does. I yeah. mean, there there always are, but um, I think I'd prefer that than trying to figure out ways to sell my art to a vast amount of people because yeah. I don't think that's... Well, you're a poet, so... Yeah, really right. Well, why do you think I decided to be a poet? I don't want anybody <laughs> to read me. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, like, like poets, you know, there could be... But even if, if there was a massive renaissance, it's still... It, but, and, I, and I agree, and I, I hear what you're saying, like, that's why I chose it. I totally get that because every art form is a contract of a kind and a kind of ecosystem of a kind. If you want to be a musician, you know, unless you're in some super obscure uh, genre of music, you want a wide audience. You know, if you're going to be a poet, you're saying, well, I don't, that's not necessarily what, where I'm heading. Well, it's interesting because I, when I, when I try to write a poem, I don't necessarily, I don't think about who's going to read the poem. You mm-hmm. know, I'm thinking about how am I making the poem or in what way could I make the poem? And I'm just ultimately, I think, more interested in just the action of making rather than um, having a product and, mm-hmm. and trying to say that the product is the art. Um, yeah. Because I think that, yeah, I just think the action of production is, is more interesting. Yeah, let's, let's come back to this more in the second half of the show sure. because I really do want to hear, you know, Robin and I lived in New York City for a long time. I lived there 20 years. I went to New York as a poet. I ended up doing so many different things, which mm. the author talks about. Right? Yeah. The author talks about, I'm not just a poet, I'm also a ballerina, and I do this <laughs> stuff. You know, and sure. so that's part of it. I, I just kind of want to um, piggyback on this idea of, you know, that the action and the process of making is the... Uh, the artistic um, expression, and he does mention this in the article. He calls it producerism, yeah, and that that's become you know that one of our you know we as consumers are really now um, uh, mostly driven to produce goods that enable us to produce. But and he was he was really down on that. Oh yeah, and yeah. tripping um, with contempt. Yeah, and it's just it's it's surprises me just because uh, in my lifetime it's been fant- fantastic to be able to make a film and to you know um, to have all these different experiences and um, sure. yeah. So I just wanted well, to right. say this this idea of producerism is is I, I've always thought it was a good thing. Well, he he sees it. I think is amateur hour where just a bunch of amateurs are making things and that takes away from time given to artists who actually know what they're doing to educate us and and yeah well I mean yeah it's it's a a weird thing it's easy to be an amateur and to show everybody your work nowadays you know (laughs) maybe people are less self-conscious today than they were back 30 years ago I don't know I wasn't alive yeah um but 
I don't know. I think that um, I think that it, you know, there there could be problems with like having you know just this outlet to uh, produce and to um, I don't know. Publish maybe is a strong word, but at least to disseminate um, your work uh, widely, especially if it's. I don't know. I feel like amateur might be a little bit of a of a hot button term, but I think I think there's something about I think going back to the idea of technique or the idea of craft that I think that is important in the creation of of something. Yeah, it's nice to be, you know, iconoclastic and to say I'm going to come and I'm going to break down all the structures and I'm going to make a new art. But oftentimes I think the most interesting art is the art that piggybacks off of like other art and sure. off of other artists' ideas, you know. Mm-hmm. I think I was saying this to you, Robin, earlier in the studio, um, but like you can't make art in a vacuum. You know what I mean? It has to be in conversation with something, whether it's with the audience, whether it's with the art that, you know, is influencing what's being made ultimately or the artists that this particular artist like and, you know, is trying to channel through. Um, mm-hmm. Or just like by accident, gonna be very honest. Like every thought we have every single day is definitely a thought that's been had by someone else at some other point in time somewhere. So I think that every single thing that we like to think is coming from our art and you know we're putting into our art and has a sense of originality, it it doesn't really have as much originality as we think. And I think that's way more okay than people think. Mm-hmm. Too. I'm totally with you. And it's also like that's why it resonates with people is because if you're putting something out in the world that people can recognize and and um, and understand it's almost like I was thinking about it in preparation for this conversation that there's something about a piece of work that that really moves me where it's almost like ah it's something it's almost like I remember it, it helps me to remember something that I already knew or it helps give me words or a a visual or whatever it has for something that I already knew, which is such a fantastic experience. Yeah. Well, okay. So we're going to take a break in in a minute or so. I did want to say that like this idea of, uh, this idea of this record label protecting its artists, what is pretty ridiculous in my opinion. Um, this is a, a guy who's never seen The Wall or, like, listened to Diamond Dogs or, like, how much <laughs> angst and hatred uh, musicians have towards their record labels. Justified. I've read books about it. So, you know, it's, he seems to be romanticizing everything that isn't now. And maybe when we come back, we can talk about why he has such concern and contempt for the moment we're living in now. And I have just one more thing. This is the kind of stuff I would say, and I'm so glad to read it in print because I'm like, wait a second. I don't want to be a cranky old man anymore. <laughs> like, this is not working for me because it's just cranky and he's not seeing all the real possibilities here mm-hmm. and how this could actually be a great moment. So we're going to go um, in a second and we're going to come back. We'll do some promos and some music and we'll be back with you in a minute. When your love has moved away You must face yourself and you must say I remember better days 